Amazing. Thank you, Irene. And uh, good morning, everybody. Um, welcome to St. John's. If you are here for the very first time, it's great to have you with us, whether in the building or whether you are watching online. Uh, my name's Graham. I'm the vicar of the church. And uh, it's my great privilege to be beginning a new little sermon series today, which is going to run us through from here up until uh, Christmas. And uh, we're responding to a little bit of listening and a little bit of uh, thinking together we did earlier in the year. Uh, and, and wanted to do something that would try and address some of the big issues that occupy our daily lives and the things that con- we have to contend with on a day-to-day basis. So uh, we're going to have a little how-to series over the next sort of 10 to 12 weeks or so, and we're going to be thinking about um, how to handle anxiety, how to manage your money, uh, how to not be offended by other people, how to get along with your workmates, uh, and a whole variety of other topics hopefully super practical, Um, and we're going to begin today with uh, uh, me thinking about how we find our purpose in life. So how to find purpose in life. Now I should say um, as I begin that, uh, Irene, I'm very glad that you enjoyed reading that Bible passage so much. I love the book of Ephesians because the book of Ephesians is all about reconciliation of peoples to one another and to God in Christ. It's all about um, forgiveness, about grace, about those barriers which separate us. It's all about alienation from one another and from God being overcome and people being brought back together and living in the light of that grace uh, and that goodness of God. And the letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians also happened to be one of the favorite letters of John Calvin, um, the great Protestant reformer. He preached a 48-part sermon series on Ephesians. So 2023, church. (laughs) I'm joking. Um, There is much in this passage, and, and, and as Irene enjoyed reading it and preparing to read it, I encourage you to go away and meditate on it. Um, but I want to focus particularly today on that final verse. For we are God's handiwork, or in another translation, we are God's craftsmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's a verse which just hints towards an idea that answers the question we're exploring today. How do we find our purpose in life? We discover that we are God's craftsmanship, God's handiwork, and we've been created in Christ Jesus for his purposes, for his good works in the world that are given us in advance to do. So let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you that we have this time to explore such an important subject for each and every one of us, how we find our purpose in life. And we thank you that you have a hope, a plan, and a purpose for each and every one of us. And we pray that we would hear your voice speaking afresh to us today, reminding us of your plans and purposes for us, and that you'd make our hearts willing to hear and to respond. May our faith be renewed as we gather in this place. May we go out from here overflowing with joy and hope because of your purpose for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we've got to begin by thinking, what is our purpose in life? Why do you exist? Why are you here? What's life all about? Uh, I'm not going to launch into song, although those are the first two lines to an old Monty Python song, for those who are old enough to remember. Um, 
And I think that there are some messages in the world around us that suggest an answer to those questions. And, and often these messages can be quite overwhelming and they can start to direct our own thinking and our own uh, thoughts uh, and instincts about why we are here, about those answers. And there are three things, uh, I think, that can very easily uh, creep in and suggest themselves as answers to that question. What is the purpose of my life? Why am I here? And the first is um, that you are an accident of birth, that it's just nature running its course. You exist because of nature. You are the product of a sexual union between your parents. Nobody really wants to talk about that in church, but let's face it, it's true. I'm so glad the kids and youth have gone out at this moment, especially mine. Uh, now, such a response might suggest that you're an accident. Why isn't it? Were you in, was it intended? Was it uh, an active intention to seek children by their congress? Was it failed birth control? Was it an unplanned pregnancy? Was it the result of an abusive or a dysfunctional relationship? All of these possibilities are there, and they can leave us thinking that there is just, in a way, it's nature takes its course, biological determinism, uh, natural appetites of men and women lead to this accident of birth, and that's why you're here. No great grand plan, it's just life. That's one response that might suggest itself to that question of why am I here? What's my purpose in life? You've got no purpose. It's just nature. Get on with it, make the best of it. Second response that I think suggests itself in our society, and I think this suggests itself quite powerfully in our society, the response to the question of what you're for might be, you are here to play your part as a producer and a consumer in an economically conceived society. In other words, you might think that the purpose of your life is just to get on and play the game of sort of late modern Western consumer capitalism. Be productive, be consumptive, get a job, pay your taxes. I won't comment on how many taxes you'll pay more or less at different amounts, but that's in the news, isn't it, at the moment. Um, and that this is, in a way, just saying that society, human society, is conceived economically and with a kind of utilitarian sense. You're just there to be useful in uh, working, paying your taxes, paying in to help pay the pension funds of those who are elder, um, building things for the future for those who will come after. And the purpose of a child is to grow into adult participation in wider society. And, and in this view, of course, uh, education is not so much about cultivating wisdom and learning for life. It's more about being equipped to go into the marketplace and get employment. And employment is required so that you can both produce and you can also consume. And the measure of your value in this worldview is GDP or GNI, monetary wealth, and your capacity to participate in this economic vision of the world. And if you fail at any stage of your education, and you can't secure employment, you feel a failure. You feel like you're failing to play a full part in the economic human project and you'd best have children so there's a chance that they might do better than you. That's another sort of view, an economically determined view of why we are here and what's going on. Now, nobody is quite crude enough to put it in those terms, but I think those messages sometimes are there because we feel like we're a success or a failure depending on how well we can enter into this vision of human society. Uh, there are some good things about each of these, by the way, which I'm going to come to in a moment. 
But a third potential response to that question of what, what you're here for, why you're here, why life exists, would be to say that the purpose of your life is to express yourself, the authentic inner self. Don't let anybody hinder or constrain you in expressing you. You do you. You be you. And in this view, liberty and freedom of self-expression are ultimate goals. We must never let anybody dominate or control our own capacity to self-express or self-actualize. Anything that might say you need to conform to some other social norm is an oppressor, an enemy. The pursuit of your desires, when challenged or limited, makes you a victim of injustice, and you've got to engage in a power struggle to fulfill your purpose. So look, these are crude sketches, I grant you, but I do think these are three basic conceptions uh, of human existence. One, that it's just biological determinism. You're an accident of nature, accident of birth. That's just how things go. Uh, Second, that you are participants in uh, an economic vision of the world, Um, It's very utilitarian, very much about production and consumption. And third, a slightly romantic view of the authentic self that requires and desires unhindered expression. Now, if I were going to peg this to any great Western philosophers of the last 200 years, I'd probably say that they bear some relationship to Freud, to Marx, and to Nietzsche, the great uncanonized saints of the Christian church, because they had these extraordinary insights uh, and critiques of Christianity, which helped Christian theologians respond and develop a better, a better response from Scripture. But the point there is that Freud, in a sense, saw so much, this is a crude summary, but saw so much of human life being determined by the sort of animal nature and drive of the ego, the id, the superego, all these things, that Marx saw human society very much conceived as being a struggle in this economic vision of sort of winners and losers, uh, gain and loss, and how you play your part and how, you, how society is organized. And Nietzsche um, had a, a strong focus on the sort of will to self, the expression of self um, by power, uh, and, and a, accumulating the power to be ex- express yourself so that you're not limited by external forces. So that's, a, again, a slightly kind of crude um, thumbnail sketch of it, but I think it probably has some truth in it. And of course, sometimes when we think about those great idols uh, that, contempt our, uh, that contempt our hearts away from Christ, they so often are sex, money, and power. So often sex, money, and power are the three things which seem to offer us fulfillment, success, uh, a vision of how we should be and how we should live. Um, in the world and in society, and yet we know that anything which uh, tries to take the place of the true and living God ultimately will not um, satisfy. So these three things may have some truth in them um, that we might express, but they don't get the heart to the heart of understanding the purpose of humanity in the Christian worldview. So to gain an insight into what God's purpose uh, for us is, we have to turn to the pages of the Bible. We have to see what Scripture says about God and about humanity. And again, as I said at the beginning, Ephesians 2 verse 10 uh, is a key verse for us. We are God's craftsmanship, handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, not an accident of birth, not 
to fulfill some economic vision of the world, not for self-expression or self-actualization, but we are God's craftsmanship, made by him, created in Christ Jesus for his purposes, to do good works that God himself prepared in advance for us to do. A great Psalm 139 that you'll all know well says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Before I was even born, you knew me. Before there was even a word on my lips, you knew it. It's a very different vision of human life and existence. So I want to think a little bit today about how we find our purpose in life, how we discover again that we're God's handiwork, and to think about and to find out what those good works that he prepared for us in advance might be. First of all, created in Christ Jesus, there might be accidental parents, but there are no accidental children. Colossians 1 says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn over all creation and that all things hold together in him. You exist because God created you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. He knit you together in his mother's womb. You are a child of God. That's the claim of the Bible. That's the claim of the Christian faith, contrary to any other voice in the world. You bear his likeness. You carry God's genetic code, not just the DNA of your parents. Now, there are a few genetic disorders in there. We are marred and mangled by sin, and we do transmit that from one generation to the next in our relationships, in, our, uh, in all kinds of ways. But basically, you're created to represent Christ in the world, to represent Christ by your own humanity. Now, the posh theological phrase for this is the imago dei, means the image of God. It's just Latin for image of God. And it's a claim in Christian faith about our purpose, that we are made to bear the image of God in our lives. How is the world supposed to know what God is like? They look at us. They look at us because we bear God's image. It's distorted and broken at the moment. It's being repaired. It's not a perfect reflection of God's image. But nonetheless, we bear his image. You know the story of the child who is drawing a picture, and the mother says to the child, that looks like a nice picture, what are you drawing? And the child says, I'm drawing a picture of God. To which the mother replies, oh, that's so funny. Nobody really knows what God looks like. And the child says, when I finish my picture, they will. How do we know what God is like? We look at Jesus. We talked about that in our all-age worship service at the beginning of uh, September, and we're going to keep on talking about what God is like throughout our all-age worship services, first Sunday of every month. But Colossians 1 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is God made visible, and we're created in his image. Now, what that doesn't mean is that being created in the image of Jesus means we should all look like Middle Eastern men of 2,000 years ago, Right? Um, we don't all need to have olive skin, be about five foot eight, and grow a beard, let alone be circumcised. That is not how we have to conform to the image of Christ. But the Bible says we're made in the image of God, male and female, he created us, Genesis 1. Another little feature, of course, of um, this being made in the image of God and being reconciled, the book of Ephesians is so much about reconciliation, um, the other thing the Bible, the other message of the Bible wants to say is that we bridge divides by coming together as man and woman, created maleness and femaleness, coming together in covenant love and faithfulness that transcends our sexual differentiation, and that's part of how we reflect 
the fullness of God in the world. That's part of how we become co-creators. Um, and in a sense, that's biology. It's also theology, and it's also another sermon, but I'll just leave it there. In fact, the glorious variety and diversity of human creation, finding ways to love, finding ways to accept and to cherish one another, is part of that great work of reconciliation that contributes to the divine work of reconciling all things to God. So when, we, when we're reconciled, when we learn to be gracious to one another, when we learn to love, when we learn to forgive, when we learn to accept one another, that's part of our fundamental human person. And when we do that, it renews the image of Christ in us. We bear the image of God more fully so that that overall message of reconciliation is seen in the world. And with that grace, that love, that forgiveness, acceptance, we also allow the Spirit's work of transformation in our uh, lives to occur, so we become more like Christ. I said a moment ago that we, are, we bear the image of God, which is true, uh, but it's marred and mangled by sin. It's, it's what I sometimes call a faulty goods. Faulty goods, return to manufacturer for repair. Yeah, you have got those product recall adverts in the newspaper. It's a good thing, but it's broken and marred. It needs to go back to its manufacturer for repair. And the first part of the passage that Irene read for us picks this up for us. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its devices and desires. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. In other words, Paul is saying, you, you did have a broken and distorted image of Christ. You were following those other words about your purpose. Sex, money, power, whatever the message is, you are following those, gratifying the cravings of your flesh, following its desires and thoughts. But, he says, verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You're made in the image of God. You're broken and mangled by sin. But because of God's mercy, you're being put back together, becoming more like Christ. But that's going to involve some change. If Christ accepts you just as you are and demands no change, no transformation, then it's probably not Christ who has accepted you, but rather a saviour of your own making and made in your own image. We say that again. If you're accepted by Christ, just as you are, but there is no demand for change in your life, no transformation, no repentance, then it's probably not actually Christ who has accepted you. It's a saviour of your own making, one made in your own image. That can be very tempting, very seductive. Take everything about our own lives that we love. Say it in a loud voice. Imagine it beyond ourselves and say, that's our saviour. It's me. Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, if you find yourself agreeing too wholeheartedly with any ideology, any political party, any movement, uh, any theory that this world has to offer, you might actually be being conformed to the world more than to Christ. It's not to say that there aren't good things in different visions of the world. There's lots of truth. We don't have a monopoly on truth. There's lots of truth uh, out there to be uh, discovered and perceived. But if we are agreeing too wholeheartedly with any one thing, then it might not be Christ that is speaking to us.
We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So becoming like Christ will mean doing what Jesus does. Jesus says in John 14 that he only does what he sees the Father doing. When we do what Jesus does, we become co-curators of creation. God's original purpose for us in creation was that we might be stewards of his creation. Genesis 1 and 2 gives us a a mandate to um, subdue the earth, to steward the earth and make it fruitful, to care for it. We're to care for the world, to tend to its needs, to make it fruitful. But instead, as we know, we have exploited the world for our own gain. And at no stage in human history have we done this more shamefully than the past 200 years, particularly in the West. And as we know, environmental disaster now looms. And we can't cry out to God for help if we're not willing to take responsibility ourselves, change our ways, repent, and work with him for the renewal of all things. But again, that's another sermon. We have a purpose in God's plans. But it's not about you individually. It's about cooperating with God in the glorious work of the renewal of all things. So you know that feeling when you see something beautiful made, when you see justice done, when you see a broken relationship restored, um, that feeling when you see communities transformed and renewed so that outsiders and outcasts are brought into relationship. If you see somebody exercise forgiveness or mercy um, or grace, that's the renewal of all things. And it feels good. When we see it, it feels good. It feels like life in all its fullness. And notice this. It's so often when it benefits other people around you, when it's other people's joy, that your own joy bubbles up. Delight in the blessings of others is the most wonderful kind of joy. And when we find it and we cultivate it, it grows exponentially. But it's not about you. It's not about your joy. It's not about you is the first line of uh, one of the best-selling books uh, in the world. Um, says, oh, that's our next slide. Uh, Rick Warren wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life. It's the second best-selling book after the Bible. And it begins with this very line. This is how it begins. It says, it's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you are placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. And he goes on to say that if we want to find our purpose, we have to avoid starting with self-centered questions. So self-help, self-actualization, self-expression, self-assertion, these are not God's purposes for you. Health, wealth, and prosperity... These are not God's purposes for you. Jesus says if you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for the sake of Jesus and his gospel, then you'll find it. And that's the paradox of Christian life, that when we're willing to die to ourselves, to seek other people's joy, other people's uh, gain instead of our own, then we truly find life. You have a purpose. You're not an accident of birth. You're not a small cog in the economic machine. You're not there just to bend the world to your will so as to fulfill your every desire. Your purpose is to join in with God's extraordinary work of creation and recreation by becoming more like Jesus, not withholding from him any part of your life, but offering yourself to the transforming power of his spirit in wholehearted self-surrender. So, with all that said, 
finding our purpose in life will always involve this paradox. Two things that should mean the opposite but actually reveal the truth. You've got to be willing to lose yourself to find yourself. If you try to hold on too tightly to your sense of self or who you are, you'll actually end up losing it. C.S. Lewis had a saying about this as well that helps us understand it. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's when we just start to find that we're less preoccupied with our own concerns, what benefits us, how we're doing, but rather we're concerned with others. We're focused on Jesus. We're focused on his family and how we can serve. But there's another paradox here as well, that to think a little bit about what makes us tick, we have to develop a bit of self-knowledge and self-awareness. We've got to work out why we're here and what we're for. So two paradoxes, I suppose, I'm suggesting to you. One is that to find your purpose in life, you've got to not cling too tightly to your life. You've got to be willing to surrender to what God's purposes are for you uh, and not think about yourself too much. But on the other hand, that uh, actually, if we want to try and understand what makes us tick, we've got to do a bit of an inventory and recovery and figure out what really are you here for. I tried to wrestle uh, with this a few years ago uh, to think about what my purpose as a Christian is and to try and come up with a bit of a personal vision statement or purpose statement. And I came up with these three things which uh, I felt were uh, the purpose of my life. Uh, and the first is based on the, uh, an Anglican collect that you hear me quote very often. It says, Almighty God, in Christ you make all things new. Transform the poverty of my nature by the riches of your grace, that in the renewal of my life you might make known your heavenly glory. So this is about bearing witness to the ministry of reconciliation. So as I am transformed by God's mercy and grace, so may his heavenly glory be revealed so that others can see. I think that's part of my purpose. I'm making slow progress towards that end, but progressing nonetheless. The second was to experience, God's, uh, to experience joy in God's presence. So in the early 17th century, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was a sort of statement of faith trying to explain uh, human purpose, said this. It said, the chief end of man, chief end of humans, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the first statement of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, to say we are here to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's another way of saying the same thing. We're here to reflect his goodness and his glory, and experience joy in his presence. And the third is a saying from uh, a second century uh, bishop of Lyon in France, a man named Irenaeus, or Irenaeus, depending on how you translate it, and he said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. He said, when you see humans fully alive and flourishing, it reflects God's glory in the world. What did Jesus say? John 10, verse 10, I've come that they might have life, and life in all its fullness. But when we want to discover our own purpose in life and we want to reflect on why God has made us, we've got to first of all tackle a great stumbling block for ourselves, and that is the problem of comparison. Next slide. The trouble with comparison. Because so often when we start to think about our own purpose in life, we begin by looking at other people and thinking about their purpose in life and how we measure up to them. Napoleon Bonaparte said, comparison is the thief of joy. And we compare ourselves to people all the time. How do I measure up to that person? Whether that's on social media, whether that's in your peer groups, whether that's about family expectations and pressures. You know, you phone your mum and your dad and you're having a chat with them on the phone or you phone your brother or sister and it's like, how are you getting on? How are you measuring up in comparison to them? 
I'm not going to elaborate any more than that. You know this to be true. But it's, it's greatly troubling for us when we're actually trying to think about God's purposes for our own life. Why? Because when we begin to compare ourselves with one another, I think we can fall victim to two um, particularly destructive impulses. One, on the one hand, envy, and on the other hand, self-pity. Right? And I think they're two sides of the same coin. Envy is looking at what other people have, what is going on in other people's lives, and wishing you had their life, wishing you had their possessions, wishing you had their prosperity, wishing you had their success. Um, and, and, and envy can take on a sinister tone because it can sometimes even wish that they didn't have success or blessings or prosperity because you don't have it. So envy can start to become violent towards others. Why is it always that person who gets the breaks? Why is it always that person who seems to have money and holidays? Why is that always that person who seems to get the work promotion? It's not fair. I wish they didn't have it. Envy can make us violent towards other people. The other side of the same coin, I think, is self-pity. It's not fair. I don't have all the things that others have. I didn't have the advantages. I didn't... I, I had a... When they were dealing out the cards in the game of life, I got a poor hand. Now, one of the reasons we have to be really careful about envy and self-pity is that appearances can be deceptive. Actually, we know very little, really, about what's going on in other people's lives. And, and often, the person that you're envious of, they might be looking back at you, envying you. They might see something in your life that they wish they had for themselves. We really don't know most of the time what's really going on in people's lives. So, so learn to remind yourself of that truth. And when you find yourself tempted on social media, in your workplace, in your family, to sort of feel a bit sorry, a bit down, a bit self-pitying, a bit envious, say, All right, actually, they might be feeling just as miserable as me right now. Who knows? And, and, and in relation to this issue about how we find our purpose, of course, the problem is that it, when we are focusing too much on somebody else's purpose, it obscures our own sense of what God has given us, where God has placed us. I want to suggest that the best antidote I know to envy and self-pity is the practice of the spiritual discipline of thankfulness and thanksgiving. St. Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances. Be thankful always. Because when we are thankful when we practice thanksgiving, and that, listen, that can be as simple as sitting down when you, in, with your morning coffee or tea or whatever you do, and you're praying or at night time, and just thank, thank you, God, for this mug. I really like it. Thank you, God, for this chair I'm sitting in. It's comfortable. Thank you, God, for my oodle. It's keeping me warm in the cost of living crisis. Whatever it might be, start with what's right in front of you and tangible and practice thanksgiving. Thank you, God, that the lights are on and it's warm in here. And then let it flow out. Thank you for my work colleagues. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for my housemates. Thank you for my family. Thank you that I have shoes on my feet that don't let the water in. Whatever it might be, I, I really think that actually this discipline of starting small, but just building up that little litany of thanksgiving is a, is a really, really helpful spiritual discipline. It has saved me, I believe, from crippling envy or self-pity. I really believe that to be true. So we've got to overcome comparison when we're going to think about finding our 
purpose. Um, I want to bring this into land with just a couple of other tools that might help you think about your purpose in life. Uh, in community organizing, we do an exercise um, called the stick person, which is thinking about the events and the relationships and the um, forces that have shaped you and where your passions lie. I'm not going to go through that, but if you're interested in learning more about that, speak to myself or anyone on the team, because we've all done this exercise at some point or another. Um, but there are other tools that we can use to think about our purpose. And one of them is this um, purpose Venn diagram. This sometimes comes up uh, when people are thinking about calling or vocation, but I think it applies for purpose as well. Um, and this is about how we align the things that we love, things that we love to do, things that we're good at, things that the world needs, things that we can be paid for, perhaps, if you're thinking about a career, you're thinking about what you're going to do for your job or your living. And how do you find these things aligning? And you see in this diagram, it, this overlaps and talks about things that the world needs and things that you love might be your mission in life. Things that you love and you're good at might be your passion in life. Things that you're good at and you can be paid for might well be your profession. Things that you can be paid for and that the world needs are about vocation. But when all these things come together, you might find a sense of your purpose. For me, it's about building up the local church so that women and men can hear week in, week out what it means to be made in the image of God and to be restored uh, in the image of Christ. That's basically my calling and vocation in life. I won't ask you whether you think I'm any good at it, but I love it and I know the world needs it and it's helping me pay the bills. <laughs> um, let me turn a different way, which is something that Tim Keller suggested. Uh, and this is actually on a little paper Tim Keller wrote about spiritual gifts, but I think it's also helpful for thinking about our um, purpose. Uh, and he said that when you're thinking about what God has called you to do, what God has given you to do, and you're trying to assess it and think about your calling, your purpose in life, uh, you can think about three things. He said, think about your, where there's an affinity. I love this. What human needs do I vibrate to? What interests me? What are my passions? What do I, what do I love to do? Is that about uh, teaching others and seeing people learn? Does my heart beat a bit faster when I know that um, people are learning and uh, developing their gifts? Well, maybe, maybe God's calling you to be an educationalist in some way or another. Is it about your, uh, then think about your ability. What are you actually good at? You know, are you good at spreadsheets and organizing things? Are you good at completing tasks and making things happen? Maybe you should be an accountant, especially around year end. Who knows? Um, but think about the things that you're good at. All of us have different gifts and skills, things we're good at. And if we're honest, all of us have things that we're not very good at as well. But then thirdly, opportunity. What doors for service are open? What needs to be done? Tim Keller says that in particular in the life of our church, so not when you're thinking about what you do in your sort of everyday life, your Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday life, but in the life of our church, if you want to think about how God might be calling you to serve in the church, the first question to ask is, what needs to be done and can I do it? What's in front of me? Does the carpet need hoovering? I'll hoover the carpet. Do they need somebody to help on the cafe team? I'll do that. Do they need someone to help with the cat money course? I'll learn that. I'll muck in. So he says, look for where the opportunity is, because very often that's the starting point. He says, if you, if you focus too much on your affinity or your ability in relation to service in the church, you might well be imposing on the church something that's of your own making rather than actually a need. You might be wanting to impose something. So look for where there's a need that you can meet. And this will happen and change seasonally. When we're thinking about our purpose in life and our calling, you know, if you're a mum and you've got young preschool children, God has given you a purpose in life. He's given you a vocation. 
I'm not saying it's exclusively that. I'm by no means saying that you, know, you can't be pursuing other callings as well, creative callings, professional callings at the same time. But there is a sense in which, actually, if you're going to offer yourself into God's hands to be a parent who raises a child, that's a vocation, that's a calling, that's a purpose. And that's going to require some time and attention. And of course, that's true for dads as well in relation to that. If you are, you know what I mean, at each stage of life, there's a sense in which there is a purpose and a vocation that reveals itself to you. If you're in a period of education at university and you're studying, that's your vocation and calling in this season. It might not be forever. Our purpose is greater than our job or our career. Not that jobs and careers aren't important, they can be good things, but our sense of purpose that underlies it is more important. And as I said earlier, that our purpose, our fundamental purpose, is to reflect Christ in the world, in all things. To represent in the world his forgiveness, his grace, his love, his kindness, his joy, so that the world may see and know that Jesus is alive. And that means drawing closer to him and becoming more like him. So if you want to find our purpose in life, the first thing we must do is prioritize proximity to Jesus, coming close to him in scripture, in prayer, in fellowship. You can't get close to Christ without reading the Bible, without coming to worship with others in the church, without spending time in prayer without coming to be fed at his table. If you don't do any of those things, you will be walking away from Christ. If you want to come closer to Christ, those are the practices that have endured through the ages, the habits of Christian life and existence. You are made in the image of God. You are not an accident of birth. You're not simply a pawn in an economic vision of the world. You're not there to assert and impose your own sense of identity yourself upon others in a power struggle. You're made in the image of God. You're a faulty good, returned to manufacture for repair, a broken masterpiece, painstakingly being repaired and put back together so that the original glory of God may be seen in your life. That is how to find your purpose in life. Would you like to stand and let's pray together? And if Jeremy can come. We're going to respond by singing, worship, worshipping Jesus together, drawing close to him. Jeremy's going to lead us. But I also want to lead us in prayer and invite you to reflect on what God is saying to you today. Father, thank you that you have revealed to us that when we want to discover purpose in our life, we don't start with ourselves, but we start with you, with Jesus, with your plans. We remember and declare that truth, that we are your handiwork, your craftsmanship, that we are created in Christ Jesus. 
to fulfill your good purposes for us that you prepared in advance for us. We pray that even now as we reflect, as we respond, you would be high and lifted up, that our gaze would be fixed upon Jesus on the throne. 